Well, we're getting our hearts ready for Easter, and as a church, we're taking these several weeks before Easter to just drill down and make sure that we understand the importance of Jesus, his work in the world, his work in our lives, the importance of his death and resurrection, and all the implications of that. And as a way of doing that, we're kind of rallying around this ancient document called the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the only few, I mean, there's only like one or two statements that virtually every particular division of Christianity agrees with. This, This ancient document goes all the way back to about 170 A.D., and it was mutated and formed over the next couple hundred years, but by about 400 A.D., 320 or so, uh, it was in the form that we largely have it today. And it defines not all that Christians believe, and not the different divisions that Christians believe. It defines the core of the core. And today, we're going to focus on kind of the second key phrase in the Apostles' Creed. And that key phrase is very simple. I believe in Jesus Christ, His, the Father's, only Son, our Lord. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord. We're going to unpack that in just a moment. But first, I want to take you back to ancient Israel. You may not know about this, but our Bible is divided primarily into two parts. Now, if you've been in church, you've heard this. It's, it's okay if you kind of, you know, turn off for a minute if you need to because this is repetition. But if you haven't been around the Bible or church much, let me just catch you up in two minutes. Our Bible is divided into two key parts what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the key dividing event between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the birth of Jesus. So the Old Testament deals with everything before Jesus, and it anticipates a coming Lord, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. All the Old Testament anticipates the coming Jesus. And then the New Testament begins with the birth of Jesus and moves forward. It moves forward from the time he was born in a manger, He snuck away, diverted himself from his parents at 12 years old and ends up in the temple. From the time he's about 30 and he begins a a public ministry, all the teaching, the, the Beatitudes, the parables, the profound statements he made all the way up to his death and resurrection. Those, are, those stories are included in the first four books of the, or divisions of the New Testament. And then the rest of your Bible, which is a part of the New Testament, is unpacking all the things that Jesus said and did in the life of a group of people called the church. So when you look at your Bible and you see it as hinging on the person of Jesus, Jesus. It becomes very, very clear quickly without, without even having a seminary degree or a theological degree or a lot of Bible knowledge. It becomes very clear very quickly that Jesus is the central person in the Bible. It all anticipates him coming. It all deals with the fact that he's here and what he did. And then it deals with the implications of the fact that he came. And I think it's important every once in a while, no matter where you are in your walk of faith, no matter where you are in a relationship with Jesus, you're fully devoted, you're not even sure if he existed, no matter where you are, I think it's important from time to time to drill down and ask yourself a basic question. What do I believe? What what, what do I believe? And does that belief impact my life? In other words, am I consistent with what I really believe is true about me, the world around me, the, the, the universe, Am I consistent with those beliefs and my behaviors over time? It's very easy to hold on to a statement that you say you believe, and over time, over time, as, as a friend of mine who's a coach, he, he uses this word, he says there's, there's slippage. 
He says, on a basketball team, you work on the fundamentals all the time. You work on the fundamentals all the time. And then you get into playing season. And everybody's eager to make the basket. And the fundamentals begin to slip. And every once in a while, when you come back to practice, you have to forget shooting. And you have to just go back to dribbling. You have to go back to passing. Now, that's the entire span of my knowledge of sports, all right? So I can't go any further than that. I'm not a sports guy, but, but I hope I didn't screw that up too much, all right? But he says there's slippage on the team, and you've got to go back to the fundamentals. And that, that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing right now. We're going back to the fundamentals, and today we're talking about not the creed. We're using the creed primarily as a springboard to talk about important fundamental truths that Christians have held for the last couple thousand years. They're exceptionally biblical because they come right from the pages of the Bible. But, but they, they may not, not be worded in the exact same words that the Bible uses. So let's unpack this one phrase. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe. Now in the Bible, belief is an interesting thing. The word faith is attached with that. It's more than just I accept it as true. But that, that's a type of faith. That's a type of belief, and it's a good thing. But when Christians say they believe in something, these core doctrinal statements, it's more than just, I agree that it's true. It goes all the way down to trust. Not only do I believe it's true, I'm going to make decisions in light of the fact that I believe it's true. I'm going to trust it. It's the difference between, if I had a chair here, of me saying, I believe that chair will hold me, and me actually sitting in the chair proving that I believe it will hold me. You, you see the difference? So when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, we're not just saying we believe that he existed. Most people, not all, there, there's a small segment of the 100% of our population in the world that don't believe Jesus existed. And as archaeology and, and academic study progresses, that number actually is smaller today than it was 75 to 100 years ago. There's fewer and fewer people in the world that would flat out deny that Jesus ever walked. Now, they may disagree with what the Bible says about him and describes about him, but most people would believe at least he was a historical figure. But that's not the kind of belief we're talking about. When this creed and the Bible says that we put our belief in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, it's more than just acknowledging that he was alive. It's putting our life our hopes, our dreams, our entire self under his care, under his control. So in this particular phrase, it says, I believe in Jesus. Let's talk about that word, Jesus. Jesus was a popular name back when Jesus was born. It, it's, it, it's the Aramaic or, uh, or the, uh, the, the common language of the days way of saying a very popular name in ancient Israel history, Joshua. Joshua, he's the guy that, pers uh, that came after Moses, and he walked around the city of Jericho. Elvis had a very famous song, for those of you that are my age, and you remember Elvis singing, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? It's kind of a rockabilly. Anybody? All right, I'm old. Um, yeah, Google it, all right? And so he kind of, and, and you don't really get the point, but you get the idea that, Jer that, that Joshua marched around the city of Jericho. Joshua. Joshua's name in the Old Testament meant savior, rescuer, redeemer. He's the one that would come and get us out of this mess. So Jesus was named Joshua, and then there's a language change. It, become, it becomes Yeshua, and then there's a, another language change, and it becomes Jesus. 
But basically, the name Jesus simply means Savior. When the angel shows up to Mary, she says, he says to her, you're going to give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I believe in Jesus, the Savior. And then, then there's this interesting word, Christ. Now, I had an uncle, and the way he would use the phrase, Jesus Christ, it sounded exactly like the way my mom would use my full name when I was getting in trouble. She would say, my, my first and middle name, Benny Wayne. My dad is Ben, of course. I had to be little Ben. I didn't like that, so it became Benny. My middle name is Wayne, which differentiated me from all the other Bens in the family and Bennies in the family. So Benny Wayne. My uncle would say, Jesus Christ. And I, I, I'm just repeating him. I'm not saying it that way, okay? And uh, it was almost like that was his name. But, but, but technically in the Bible, in the Bible, Christ wasn't really his name. Now, it's become his name, and that's totally okay. Christ was a description of Jesus. It was, a, it was an adjective. The Savior who is the Christ. Now, the word Christ, real quickly, just a little language study. Our, our, our New Testament is translated from Greek. The word Christ in Greek, Christos, means the anointed. The anointed. The Savior who is the anointed. That's in Greek. And remember, the Old Testament primarily in Hebrew, so there's all this language stuff going on. But in Hebrew, they had, they had another term they used, Messiah. The, the Old Testament anticipated a coming Messiah, and the word Messiah in Hebrew means effectively the exact same thing that the word Christ means in Greek. It means anointed one. Jesus, the Savior, the anointed one. I believe in the Savior who is the anointed one, and it begs the question, doesn't it? What does anointed mean? Now, this is going to get interesting. At least I find it interesting. I hope you do. And I want, I want, I want to talk you through a little bit of, of theology and history. But remember, our point is to know, isn't simply to know stuff in this message series. There is a practical, everyday application to your life about the key things we're going to talk about from this point forward. In ancient Israel, there were three major offices in their public life. There was a prophet, there were priests, and there were kings. And in that ancient society, these three offices brought order out of chaos. They brought compassion. They brought truth. And when the offices of prophet, priest, and king cooperated, everybody thrived. And when there was a problem in either the priest office or the prophet office or the king office, there was chaos in the community. People did not thrive. Now, each one of these offices, when a person was kind of pulled out of the crowd, out of the group, to serve in one of these offices, they went through a ceremony, a special ceremony, that identified that this person was chosen, ultimately, the community believed, by God to serve in that function, the prophet function, the priest function, or the king function. And in that ceremony, in each one of them, there was an, an anointing moment, which literally the word anointing only means this that they had oil poured over their heads. So when a person was kind of called out of the crowd and identified as a prophet, there would be this ceremony where some other prophet would look at them and they would take olive oil, which was precious and special and took a lot of effort to make, that would be used for food, that sustained life, 
For them, it was more than that. It indicated that God was blessing them and taking care of them. The oil literally became symbolic of God's activity in their lives. And they would take this oil and they would pour it over the prophet's head. And that oil would cover the head. And there was so much oil, it would run down and cover the face, the shoulders. And literally, from the top of their heads to the very bottom sole of their feet, they would be anointed. And that would kind of mark the initiation of the beginning of their role as prophet. Same thing with the priest. When the priest came of age, they'd grown up in a particular environment, and they were identified to begin their priestly function, the priest would be anointed as a, as a signal that they are going off to do their role. And so they would stand there, and there would be a ceremony, and they would pour the oil, and it would cover the body, every part of their body, so, you know, just just completely covered in this, in this oily, precious oil, symbolic of God's presence and activity in the life of that community. And the same thing with the king. There's some very famous stories in your Old Testament Bible where kings were anointed. Particularly, when Israel had a king named Saul, one of the prophets, Samuel, goes to a little boy named David and in a private ceremony anoints him as king over Israel. Not king yet, but anticipating the day when David would move past just killing Goliath and move past being a great warrior and become the king of Israel. So in the, in the Old Testament, you can't read very far without reading about prophets, priests, and kings. And here's what the Old Testament tells us about the Messiah, the one who would save, the one who would be the anointed of God, covered in God's presence, completely consumed with the activity of God in the world. Here's what the Bible tells us about the coming Messiah, that he would serve in the function of not just a prophet, not just a priest, and not just a king. This anointed Messiah would serve all three offices perfectly. He would be the perfect embodiment of the prophet, the priest, and the king in one person. So he wasn't just going to serve in some segment of the life of the community. He would, and his life would impact Every single component of life. Now, let's, let's talk about these three offices for just a second. The prophet. Here was the prophet's role. The prophet would represent the ideas and the truth of God down to everyday language to the people. The prophet stood between God and the people and interpreted and explained and convinced people of God's truth and God's agenda in a way that people could understand it. And so often the prophets would speak words that sounded like sermons or teachings. And they would write things that were important about God's character. Moses was a significant prophet because he brought through God's anointing on his life, God's activity and covering, he brought to the people what we would call the Ten Commandments or the law, revealing God's heart for his people. He was a prophet. It's a big deal. Now, prophets in your Old Testament, they're interesting because they are passionate. They can be wild and crazy because they get so consumed with the message that they've got to give that it, that it overwhelms them. So Jonah, maybe you've heard of him, Jonah in your Bible, he's a prophet called by God to give the message of God to the people of Nineveh. He doesn't want to do it. So he runs away and gets on a boat and a whale and all that good stuff. But then he shows up in Nineveh 
And he just says a few words. And God uses that, those words to change an entire city. Jonah's a mild prophet compared to the stories of the rest of them. You got Ezekiel. You may not even know this in your Bible. He gets so consumed with the word of God and he wants to convince the king, this prophet wants to convince the king, that God has stripped the king of all his anointing, of all of his covering, and that God isn't going to surround the king anymore with special provision. So you know what Ezekiel does? (laughs) He takes off all of his clothes and he runs through the streets declaring that the judgment of God is coming to the kingdom. The message so consumes him that he is the naked prophet. I don't ever feel that consumed with God's word when, I, when I'm coming, just, just so you know. I mean, I just, I, I never do. But there's some crazy stories about these people who are, now, now that's the prophet role. Here's the priest role. The priest still serves as an intermediary between God and people, but his intermediary action kind of goes the other way. The prophet is top down. The priest is bottom up. The priest represents the cares and concerns and the failings of the people to God in the Old Testament. He represents back to God the value and the worth of these people, even though they're failed and failing, they're sinners. So he serves as the go-between, and he creates activity that helps broken people reconnect with God. A lot of our Old Testament is concerned with the role of the priest helping people who've distanced themselves from God connect back to God through covering their sins once a year. A priest would make a major sacrifice of a spotless lamb. Another time in the year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would, would declare the sins of the community gone as the priest anointed a goat and put his hands on that goat and transitioned the sins of the community to the goat ceremoniously. And he would pour oil over the goat and then they would kick the goat out of the community as if the sins are being, you know, are literally walking away and they, they don't dwell among us anymore. That, that goat, by the way, was called the, the scapegoat. As the sins of the community were, were pushed out of the community. And so the priest served to represent the people back to God. Now the king's function, the king's function in the community was to bring the order to the culture, the order to the community. So the king was concerned with things like protection, an order out of chaos, and the rule of law, and making sure that people were in the right places and that the resources were used in the right ways so that everybody in the community could thrive. So together, the prophet, the priest, and the king, they held the, com- the community together. And the Old Testament tells us that when the Messiah comes, who we now know is Jesus, the Savior, he would perform all of those functions, not just for a select few group of people called the Israelites of the Old Testament, He would serve that function for the entire world. He would, like a prophet, represent the ideas of God, the heart of God, the thoughts of God, the words of God. And he would, through him, those words and ideas and thoughts would be brought to people in a way that they could understand it, in a way that they could hear it and be changed by it. This Jesus would be anointed. He would be covered in oil, which represented God's activity. He would be covered in God's activity, completely consumed that when he spoke, you were hearing God's words. When he acted, you were seeing God's character revealed. 
how he treated people. And there are times in the life of Jesus where he serves that prophetic role, almost like the Old Testament guys. He serves the prophetic role in this, in this interesting scene in Jesus' life where he looks at the temple and they've turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And he grabs a whip and he's thrashing around in the temple and he drives the money changers out. That's very Old Testament prophet-like. Or when he looks at a group of people that are disobeying God's heart for people, God's heart for the world, and he looks at them and he calls them, you're a, you're a den of vipers. You look alive, but here's what's really going on. You're a tomb that's been covered with white paint to make it look pretty. Outside you look fine, inside you're full of death. And he declares this judgment over them. Jesus was the anointed prophet of God, not just for a select few, but for the whole world. He wasn't just a prophet, though. He was the priest. And in his priestly role, he would represent broken humanity who didn't live up to all that God had called them to, who struggled with life, who needed compassion and care, and he would represent their concerns back to the Father as an intermediary. And in this priestly role, when you read the stories of Jesus and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you see him exhibiting significant grace and compassion to the woman at the well who nobody else is supposed to be talking to, who had a a, a sordid and checkered past, he speaks to her like she's a full human being. To, to the woman caught in adultery, he looks at the crowd and says, the one without sin, go ahead and start throwing stones. To the tax collector who robbed everybody blind, he looks up to the tree and says, Zacchaeus, today I'm going to go have dinner at your house. Nobody else wants to talk to you. I'm going to have dinner with you. And he served in his actions and in his words in this priestly office where he represented broken humanity back to God and opened up the door for humanity and their creator to reconnect. He didn't just serve as a priest and as a prophet. He also served as a king. And this is what created so much chaos in his world. Back when Jesus was living, there was a king called the emperor of Rome. And it's much different today than our president, or even in the most significant totalitarian state. We would have said Russia, but who knows where they are these days. And in the most significant totalitarian state, where the king has uber authority, it was even more than that. Because he wasn't just the king. They, in one sense, really worshipped the king as God. There were rules and laws about the reverence you had to pay, not just morally, not just economically, but spiritually to the emperor of Rome. It's called the emperor cult or the emperor worship cult. So literally, Caesar was God. They said it this way in paying homage to Caesar. Listen to this phrase. Caesar is Lord. Not just president, not just ruler, not general. You are the Lord of all things. You ha- you, they would use this phrase, you have anointing. You are covered with divinity. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And then when he first shows up on the scene, there's some wise men from the east who travel to a, a little potentate, a little king, and they say, we're here to worship the new king of Israel. And that king goes, uh-oh, <laughs> this doesn't sound good. And it was the statements about Jesus' authority that he had that rubbed people in authority the most 
badly. They, the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, these kind of bad people in the New Testament who had the form of religion, but they didn't represent the heart of God very well. They had significant power. And to them, every time Jesus would talk about his connection to God and his right to speak and your need to hear, and he would speak judgmental words about their bad behavior, it would rub them the wrong way. And ultimately, it was this role that Jesus played, the one who had a kingdom, the king that came, the king that came through the line of David, the significant king of Israel's history, and he was blood-related through Mary's side to David. This king who would supplant all the kings of Israel and ultimately supplant the power of Rome, it was the rumors of that that ultimately allowed Rome to be motivated to participate in a plan to murder Jesus. That's what happened when Jesus was alive. And later on in the rest of your New Testament, the apostles and the biblical writers, they unpack more and more about Jesus' role as prophet, priest, and king. So when the Bible says that Jesus is Lord, and when the Apostles' Creed declares, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, it's a huge amount of information contained in one statement. It includes these words that we saw on the screen earlier. Let me just read them to you because they sum up the life of Jesus in just a few key phrases. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the lowest places, even to death. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And just as much as he descended, he ascended into heaven. And today, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All those statements in the Apostles' Creed, they're Their primary point is to remind us that we're not talking about a fairy tale. These events happened. And then there's one final phrase that it uses. And from that position of honor where he sits on a throne, from there he's going to come back to this earth and he's going to judge both the living and the dead. When I was growing up, it was the phrase, the quick and the dead. We don't use the word quick very often anymore. I think the only place in modern uses where we use the word quick like this is when you clip your fingernails a little too close and it gets into the quick, you go from the dead parts of the nail into the living parts of your body. You clip to, you know, your, your fingernails in the quick. He'll come, to dead the li- he'll come to judge the living and the dead. Prophet, priest, and king. But let me tell you about one of the coolest things. When Jesus showed up on this earth, here's what he told people. And this is our impact. You're going to get it in about one minute. No longer is there an office of prophet. No longer will there be an office of king. No longer will there be the office of priest because all of that was completed in the person of Jesus. Here's what's going to happen, Jesus was saying. The apostle Paul makes it clear. Here's what's going to happen for the rest of humanity. All of my followers will be anointed. They will have my spirit not just poured over them, it will be planted in them. And from the inside out, they will live with God's favor and God's empowerment. And here's the roles that every single follower of me will have. Not just men, like prophet, priest, and king, but women too. Not just old people who are beard, but young people who are still dreaming dreams. All people who follow Jesus will have the anointing of God in their life flowing out of them. And they will all serve as prophets. All of them will have the ability to represent God's truth to this world. 
All of them will serve as priests. They will all be given a calling to compassion and grace. And all of them will be able to represent the needs of people and connect with people and help them reconnect with God. And all of them will reign as kings on this earth. Not politically like people thought Jesus would, but they will walk around as regal people whose value and worth is connected to the identity of Jesus. They are his heirs. They are his sons and daughters so that every single person on earth can be a prophet, a priest, and a king. And the offices were dismantled and the anointing flowed not just through a person but to every follower of Jesus. And it begs the question today, in what sense, to what degree, For those of us in this room that are following Jesus, are you living your life as a prophet? Maybe you never thought about it that way. That's okay. This might be new. But where you are valuing the words and the truth and the information about God contained in the Scripture, and you're embodying it personally, and when you get opportunity, you're giving those words out. In your marriage, with your kids, maybe in a formal role at a church, in the community. In what way? In what way are are we living out our commission as priests where we have compassion, where there's grace, where our words drip not just with oil of anointing, but they drip with grace. And so when people are hurting and they're broken, we show up in compassion, fully anointed by God to be present with them and for them. And where in your life are you taking the order of God, the authority of God, and bringing that like a king to bear on your life and in a positive way in the lives of people around you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but I want to give you a chance this week to do it, to accept the biblical truth that you and I are called by God to be prophets, priests, and kings. Here's two quick verses, and then we're going to take some next steps together. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through 21. It's the key verse for the whole day. I saved it to the end because I've been talking about it, but I want it to hit you squarely right now. One time when Jesus was off praying by himself, his disciples nearby, he asked them, what are the crowds saying about who I am? And they said, John the baptizer. Others say, Elijah. Still others say, one of the prophets from long ago come back. They're trying to wrestle. Who is Jesus like? There's some prophetic language in that. And then verse 30, he asked, and you... What are you saying about me? Who am I? And then Peter answered, You're the Messiah of God. In one English version translation, You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. And who we see Jesus as is a big deal. It's a huge deal. In fact, it's so big that Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how you're going to be saved. This idea that Jesus is Lord is a big deal. Let me make something perfectly clear. Jesus is not in the advice business. He's in the lordship business. This role of prophet, priest, and king. He's not a life coach. He's a savior and Lord. And he has an uncanny way of knowing where we stand on this issue and how we see him. 
If you get close and personal with God, you're going to discover that he requires something from you and from me. And that's control. And more than anything, he wants people to make the decision. Not just good decisions, but the best decision. God wants them to make a decision to give him their hearts that are totally surrendered to him. This prophet, this priest, this king, this Messiah, the Savior that came, the Lord of the universe, we believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, the one in charge. It's a beautiful picture we have of our Savior, and it's a beautiful privilege that he pushes out to us. You are a prophet, you're a priest, you're a king. Next time you're arguing with your wife, look at her and say, I'm a king, honey. I'm a king. I'm kidding. Don't do that. It's bad, bad. Don't do that. But that mentality can impact your everyday life. Let's take a few steps together as a congregation as we try to drill down and make these realities about God's word true in our lives. Here's the next step A for us. What if today you don't have a relationship with Jesus? You haven't declared him, asked him to be Lord of your life. I want to give you a chance to do that. By simply acknowledging, I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. You simply look up to God and say, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus be the Lord of my life. I accept what you've done in your death and resurrection. If you want to do that, check the box. When the offering bucket comes by later, drop that card in there. We're going to communicate with you about it. And in a minute, I'm going to pray and give you a chance to use your words. You can borrow mine and say, God, forgive me. Be my Lord. I believe that your life and death is real, that it matters, and it matters for me. Or how about next step B, you want to get baptized. Just as a public declaration that he's in charge, and you're being completely covered in all that he wants for you. Or how about next step C, by memorizing this verse as a way of internalizing it, Romans 10, 9. If with your mouth you confess Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Or how about pray this prayer? Next step D. Every day this week, Lord Jesus, lead me and I'll follow you. Lead me and I'll follow you. God, today, show me what you would have me do. Show me where to go. Show me what to say. Show me what not to say. Today, I want to follow you. Or how about next step E? Next Sunday is going to be a great Sunday here. Serve now Sunday. You don't want to miss it. So by next step B, you're just affirming. I'm going to do my best to be here. I will be here next Sunday, ready for serve now. Ready to serve now. Come. Even if you don't know what we're talking about, come. You're going to love this Sunday. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that in Jesus, we have a prophet, a priest, and a king. And thank you, Lord, that you've called us to live these roles out in our lives. You have empowered us. You have anointed us. God, where we don't live it, grow us to that place. I lift up every person in this room who's declaring, Jesus, be the Lord of my life. I'm a sinner. I put my faith and trust in you, in your death and resurrection. And Father, where you lead us, we will follow. I pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. Amen.